So as we continue to move through Isaiah chapter 6, I have a confession as we move into this sermon. I'm not sure exactly how far we're going to get through what I had originally charted for us to do today. We may have to spend a little bit more time in Isaiah chapter 6 and with some related passages as we move through the second half of the chapter. But today I, I did want to introduce uh, this movement towards the two most quoted verses from all of Isaiah chapter 6, and they're not the ones you would expect because they're certainly not the most popular. They're probably the least popular uh, out in not just the culture, but in the church as well. We're, we're going to be moving in the direction of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But that's down the road a few minutes here. To begin with, let me just talk to you for a minute before we open the scripture about failure. Failure. Um, did, did anybody come today looking forward to a sermon on failure? Most people don't like to hear about failure. Most people avoid failure and deny failure about as much as we want to deny death and other major problems in our lives. We have this fear of failing. We engender it in our children and in future generations, and certainly as some of us grow older, you know, those most of y'all are a lot younger than I am, but as I grow older, I notice that, you know, there are concerns at certain points, right, about like, maybe I can't do what I used to be able to do. What I want to talk to you about today is this aspect of failing, and it's this. Don't live in the flesh, in the human understanding of what it means to serve the Lord and to be a witness for the Lord to other people. Let me repeat that. Our temptation in the flesh, and it pertains to the way we live out our Christian lives, the way we witness or fail to witness, and even the way we grade or appreciate churches and ministries, is a fleshly tendency towards grading success on human terms. That's not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible calls us to be strong witnesses. Now, this is not just for Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season, but really for us as witnesses to carry on the Great Commission and to speak the name of Jesus, to name the name of Jesus with others, and to speak to biblical truth, whether people want to hear it or not. Now, if I am governed by a fleshly, worldly understanding of failure and success, then if the truth doesn't work, what am I tempted to do? Water down the truth. Adjust the truth. Avoid the hard parts of the truth. Ended up saying, well, you know what? God just loves you. We're here just to be your little cheerleader. Do whatever you want to do, but just please sign on the dotted line. That's not real gospel. That's not real witness. And in fact, according to the scripture, if I do that, if we do that in our witness, we are actually consigning and condemning people to hell because they are not actually saved. They have not heard the gospel truth. So what I want to encourage you to be reflecting on as we get into this really hard passage from Isaiah chapter 6 
is to remember, it's not about our success with others. It's about our faithfulness to God. Let me repeat that. It's not about our success with others. It's about our faithfulness to God, our serving God and giving other people out of God's love the opportunity to respond to the truth. And it's about trusting. We'll talk a lot about this over the next forthcoming Sundays. Trusting God's big picture plans. You and I are not in a position to grade the entire course of human history and salvation history on January the 24th, 2021. We just don't have that kind of vision. God does. So what I'm going to be inviting you to do in your witness to your children, in your witness to your friends, in your witness to other neighbors and other people that you love who are not really responding to the truth, trust in God's big picture plans and his long-term view and plans of what he's doing. You are not failing. If not everyone says, oh great, sign me up. I'm, I'm totally willing to adjust my life and repent and change my personal habits, my sexual engagements, my financial engagements, the way I treat other people. You are not a failure if you pray for and encourage people to the truth, but they choose not to turn to the truth. But ultimately, you will, we will be blessed in faithfulness when others even reject our witness. Jesus calls us to what? Deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. The cross was not a sign of success in the ancient world, I can tell you that. It was a sign of condemnation and death and degradation and humiliation. And so Jesus says in the Beatitudes, just picking up here in the great seventh of the Beatitudes and moving on, Matthew 5, 11 through 15, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, like Isaiah, the prophets who were before you, like Jeremiah. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. That is not failure in God's eyes. That is faithfulness. And so today, today's sermon, fail faithfully. Isaiah's call. Fail faithfully. Isaiah's call. Last Sunday, our message was atonement for sin, consuming fire, confession, covering, and then we bridged into the call. 
Today, we're going to recap the first part of that, consuming fire, confession, covering briefly, and then we're going to move on into the call, which I introduced last Sunday. Uh, in doing so, I got to be honest with you, we're going to be right in the middle of where 95%, I'm pretty sure you could track this statistically, 95% or more sermons end, hymns end, devotionals end when they're using Isaiah chapter 6. Most of them stop dead at verse 8. Here I am, send me, sign me up, I'm ready to save the world. We're going to build that new youth center. We're going to like, we're going to have the greatest ministry and everybody is going to buy in. Here I am, Lord. I've seen your holiness. Send me. That's not the way the verse, the verses then go. So Isaiah chapter six. Remember, Isaiah has encountered God in his holy majesty, the consuming fire, God himself. The seraphs, the flaming angelic beings, one of them, just one of them, crying out, the Trisagion. Only time we get this in the Old Testament, only time an attribute is super superlative to the third degree attributed to God. It is the central aspect of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed with his own uncleanness. He acknowledges that in confession, in the face of of the consuming fire of God. Let's pick up in Isaiah chapter six, verse five. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, not Uzziah, not some earthly king, not some earthly president. I've actually seen the real boss. I've seen the king, the Lord of the heavenly armies, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That's where we ended last week, talking about Isaiah's confession in the face of holy God, not asking for anything, not even asking to be cleansed, doesn't ask for it. This is totally God's sovereign activity of atoning grace right here. Because Isaiah, Isaiah knows he has, no, he has no leg to stand on, he has nothing to say. All he says is, I'm lost, I'm ruined, I'm silenced. I'm melted. I'm nothing. I'm done for in your presence. I have nothing more to say. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, unclean language. But then by the grace of God, the seraph comes with the burning coal to touch Isaiah's lips and says, and says, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt your guilt, your iniquity, your twistedness is taken away, and your sin is atoned for, is covered, paid in full. The whole debt is covered. You are covered. Now let's move on 
from this astounding message of amazing grace. Totally, it's 100% God giving this. Now to the calling. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? First part of verse 8, this question of consultation. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Notice the Lord in speaking. Let me highlight several things here. This is the first time we hear from the Lord. As I've been telling you in the earlier verses, we haven't heard from the Lord yet. We've heard a seraph whose, whose voice talking about the Lord shakes the foundations of the temple. But now we're hearing from the Lord himself. Now Isaiah atoned for, can actually hear from God. Do you understand the sequence here? Isaiah has been cleansed by the atoning grace of God, so now Isaiah can hear God. This is very important to the verses we're going to. And the Lord speaks singular, first person, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Notice that, right? You can see it in the English. We've shifted from singular to first person plural. Um, the question of consultation, of counsel, that's the general idea of what's going on here with the Hebrew, but you've got questions here, maybe. Uh, are we talking about the heavenly council? And, and this is the Hebrew and Israel monotheistic version of the heavenly council. In other words, with, with the Hebrew faith, with the Israel faith, there's only one God, unlike the other Near Eastern, uh, where, where you have all these councils of all kinds of gods. But are we kind of using that kind of language, but just clarifying, okay, it's God with his angels? Or are we talking about the royal we here? You know, royal we. When somebody's really in charge, they go ahead and go to plural. We've decided to, or my team has decided to. Or, when we get into these verses in the New Testament, as we move through this and the coming verses, we're going to be told that this involves Jesus, or the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. So this is not spelled out. But from our Christian understanding and reading back into this passage from the New Testament, it is reading back into it now. I'm not saying it's on the face of it. But clearly, we can have a conversation going on among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit here. Who am I going to send? Who will go for us? Jesus is going to tell us Isaiah saw my glory. So, who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Literally, the Hebrew is, behold me. Look at me, I'm here. Send me. What a changed man we have here. From one who just earlier was saying, Woe is me. I'm lost. I'm silenced. Now, 
under the atoning grace that God has extended to him, he not only can hear the Lord, but he can say, I'm willing to go. As we said last Sunday, when the Lord purchases your atonement, your forgiveness, indeed by the blood of his son, Jesus, he expects service. Service does not save you. Don't get confused on this. The atonement is totally by God's intervention. It's totally by the completed work of Jesus Christ and who Jesus is in his perfection as the Son. But when he's covered you with his Son, when he has forgiven your debts by the blood of his Son, oh yeah, this is not a cheap grace we're talking about. This is a grace that claims you, as Paul says, I'm bought and paid for. I'm no longer mine. I'm Christ. I serve him. I belong to him. So Isaiah says, um, then I said, here I am, send me. And as I said, most sermons, I'm pretty sure if you track this, if you went over exhaustively over the internet and everything else, 95% of sermons, even if they read all the way through chapter six, they're going to pretty much stop at verse eight. Send me. Victory! Success! Because now I know you, God, and it's going to all work out, and everybody's going to hear me really well in ministry, and witnessing to others, even if I'm not in ordained ministry, is just going to be a success story, and it's going to be great. Amen. Cheer lead us on. But what does God say? Verse 9. And he said, Go. And say to this people, not dispositive here, but the Zerah there, just know that he doesn't say my people. This people. That's used sometimes neutrally in the Old Testament, but it doesn't sound good heading into what God's going to say. Say to this people. Say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beloved, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. We'll move on to the next verses down the road in this series, but this gives us plenty to start dealing with today. God is speaking to the outer faculties and facilities as well as to the inner facilities. Hearing, literally on the outside, ears and seeing, and to discernment and the heart within. Uh, the ESV has a helpful note. Uh, make the heart of this people, literally, it's fat. You can see it in the little footnote in the ESV there. Fat-hearted. We have a colloquial saying, right? Fat-headed. If somebody's fat-headed, are they pretty agile in their thinking? No. They've gotten fat. 
they're satisfied with who they are and what they know, and they can't learn anything else, right? Fat-headed, okay? So, um, fat-hearted here, the entire will of the person, um, fat-hearted. So, let's break this down a little bit and deal with this. What are we going to do with this? I've given you the application up front for us. Now, let's get into the scripture a little bit more. Um, first of all, big question. God is sovereign, right? Why can't God just make everybody hear him and obey him? This raises this kind of question that we come to sometimes. Okay, Real love, real faith is not imposed. It's not coerced. Real love, mothers, fathers, spouses, you guys understand this, right? Real love comes out of response. We're dealing with that dynamic here. Well, you could say, well, God's sovereign. Is he just, I mean, is this just kind of the bad Calvinist dream going on here? Um, no, there is a dynamic going on here. Yes, absolutely. God is ultimately sovereign overall. Yes, salvation and any possibility we have to hear and believe is going to be under God's sovereign grace and interaction. We've already covered that with Isaiah. But still we have this question. Are we just reading here simply an arbitrary dictate by God that brings arbitrary judgment and condemnation? No. First, let me tell you that the opening lines here are an ironic imperative. Parents, people who are in charge of other people sometimes, you know about ironic imperative, right? Okay? You keep going out with your friends who do drugs, and you just keep doing that. You, you keep on doing that until you get addicted yourself, until you get arrested, until you ruin your life, until you get involved in all kinds of things you shouldn't be involved in. You just go ahead. Keep on going and partying with your bad friends who are doing the drugs. Am I inviting you to do that? No, I'm giving you a warning. We're talking ironic imperative. Everybody with me on this. Parents, y'all know this, this, this ironic imperative, right? Then we get to the key here. Key explanatory scripture. And today I do want to get us over to just an example of what is going on in the Old Testament. And, and to do this, I'm going to bring up my, actually, Nancy's little bully. Here he is. Okay, So here he is. He is right here. God have mercy on me. I put him on the pulpit. All right. So in the Old Testament, Israel and God's people are supposed to be distinguished from the nations because they do not engage in idolatry idolatry. What are we talking about with idolatry? Well, there's all kinds of gods, and um, for many of the gods, for most of the gods in the ancient world, there were images because people need to hold on to something. You know, when you're not, when you're not sure of things or when you want to just know God's with us and we're on the right tree, team and on the right tribe, we like to have images. We like to touch things just like 
a lot of times sports people like to touch something, like, you know, before they go out on the field. You know, football teams, some football teams all have to touch something before they go out on the field. And we like to have little images in front of us. This is what's going on. This is in our flesh. This is who we are as people. This is in our fallen sinfulness when God calls us to honor only him and not get all caught up with images. But you know what? Images can reflect power and spirit in our team and our tribe and maybe success and maybe... so. In the Old Testament, we are dealing with this big distinction between being followers of the one true God and being idolaters. Now, the Old Testament speaks about this a lot, but one classic example would be, I'm just going to extract from Psalm 115. Now, this is supposed to be distinguishing Israel and God's people from the nations who are idolaters. But anyway, just picking up at Psalm 115, verse 4. Psalm 115, good, we've got it up here. Their idols, speaking of the nations and the pagans, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel, feet, but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And then this is the key. Verse 8, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So, what this is saying is this. Now, the ancient people were not unsophisticated. you got to understand this. They would say, if I trotted somebody in from 2,000, 3,000 years ago, and just like people who have little shamans now, or little figures of saints now, or whatever they like to have physically in front of them, and kind of for good luck and to pray to and to reference to, you know, when they're in times of trouble, um, they're going to say, no, no, no. Look, I, I know this is not a bulldog. Okay, but this bulldog represents my tribe, my team, my university, my winning spirit, my what I hope for, kind of who I am. But, but I get that this is not an, a live bulldog because... But here's what God is saying. God is saying it's all part and parcel of the same thing. If you're not looking to me and me alone, then you're an idolater. So if I say, bully, come. How's it doing? Is it coming to me? Bully, bully, listen to me. I have something to teach you. Don't go this way, go that. No, turn back that way, bully. Or bully, make my team win today. Or make all my dreams come true. Or make her go out with me because she's, the, she's the, the girl that I want to date here in college. Bully, can you do it? Is this thing coming through for me? What do you think? What God is saying is, you foolish people, calling out to so-called gods is no better than calling out to this thing. So even though you tell me you're sophisticated and this is just an image, an icon pointing you to the real thing, there is no real thing out there that actually has the power that you're seeking. I'm God alone. That's what Psalm 115 is saying, number one, and the Old Testament is saying number one. But did you get verse eight? Verse eight is saying, the more and more I get caught up in idolatry, the less and less I can actually see and hear. So in the end, I am no better than this.
And so when God calls me to listen and to speak and to hear and to be saved, he might as well be talking to this thing. Everybody with me? That's what Psalm 115 is saying. That's what the Old Testament is saying. And that is what God is saying to and through Isaiah. We'll come back to this over and over again. I may bring in some other idols for us as well. And Bully may well return since we are in Starkville, Mississippi. So, there is a process where people who turn away from God become more and more stone-cold deaf and blind and stupid like a handmade idol. You see that in the Old Testament with Pharaoh. The Lord allows Pharaoh's heart to be hardened so that when the Lord speaks to Moses and through Moses to Pharaoh, he might as well be speaking to this little bully right here. Paul, over in Romans, says with respect to culture and sexuality and everything else, that the Lord reaches a point where he hands people over to the hardness of their hearts. What is the point of no return? Do you know? Do you know with a child? Do you know with a teenager? Do you know with a young adult? Do you know with an old adult? What is the point of no return? Who knows that? God, our call is to witness in the midst of the challenge of that. But God does give idolaters over to their idolatry. And what we have going on here is Isaiah is saying, even though at least the good Jews would never touch an actual idol, now there's some who would, there's some who were turning and having syncretistic beliefs where they trust in God, but they also trust in, you know, golden calves and Asherah and things like that. What God is saying is even those of you who are meticulous in avoiding idols are idolaters. And you know better than those Gentiles out there. We run into this danger as Christians. If all this is is a pretty gold icon for me to make me feel good about myself and I've lost the cross and who the Lord of the cross is that can be an idol also that's a hard message for us Christians but it's true Jesus says I don't want just pretty gold now I don't want just something you wear around your neck if you're going to follow me you actually have to deny yourself take up your cross I mean for real and come after me, the one who was willing to speak the truth and be crucified because I spoke the truth. So Jesus, confronting the Jewish leaders of his day in the middle of his public ministry, now after months and really over a year and a half of ministry in which he is not telling parables, Remember, in Mark's gospel, it's chapter 4. It's after he's already gone through several months, what are probably several months of that second year of his public ministry, after he's called disciples to start training them. You, you put in John chapters 1 and 2, and you start filling in the blanks on the first year of his public ministry. But to Matthew, 
chapter 13, 10 through 17, we pick up on the most used, most quoted verses from the entire book of Isaiah in the New Testament. As I told you in the email that I'm telling you in these sermons that we're rolling out right now, it's not for unto us a child is born. It's not what we typically sing in the hallelujah chorus, right? It's these verses about people who hear but don't hear. And it's speaking not just to Gentiles and pagans out there, but to those who are supposed to be God's own people in Isaiah's time and in Jesus' time. So Matthew 13, 10 through 17. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables to the Jewish leaders and so many in the crowds who supposedly like Jesus because he's doing miracles and feeding them free food, but they're not willing to take up their cross and follow him, okay? So, so all of a sudden, Jesus has introduced this parabolic way of teaching, and it's not just little example stories. It's a different way of teaching where a lot of people are not getting it. So Jesus explains, and he answered them. This is Jesus. To you... It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because you'll know this language now. You're hearing Jesus echo, and it echoes all through the New Testament. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he goes on, this is one of the cases where you get the specific citation now. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull or fat. And their ears, with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I, now this is Jesus here, I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. In your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then he goes on and explains the parable of the sower and the seed and how a lot of people supposedly catch on, but then they you know, when the cares of the world and their schedules and everything gets in the way, they don't actually, they're not really saved. They're just kind of superficial Christians. What's going on here? Jesus is calling us to real truth and to understand and circling back around to my opening application. I want to encourage you not to be overwhelmed by this, be challenged by this, but to know that you have been blessed to have your heart trimmed down, no longer fat, your ears actually to hear, your eyes to see and to receive and to know Jesus and believe him. 
And so you are called as a messenger, as a messenger. Even Isaiah and all the prophets long to see the coming of the Messiah. The disciples saw him. You, by faith and by the Spirit, see Jesus. You know him. You have a witness that is more powerful than Isaiah's even. Now, do you believe me? You do. That's what Jesus is telling you. Every day, pray and witness to Jesus, witness to the truth. And when some, perhaps many, even in your own family, don't light up to the truth, don't feel like a failure. You're faithful to God and you rejoice forever in the kingdom to come. And as we're going to see next week, God's got a big picture, long-term plan through all of this for salvation and a light to all people. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to you today, we give thanks, Lord, that by your grace, through your Holy Spirit, you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our discernment to know you. Now, Lord, knowing you, knowing you are holy, 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 knowing that your gift of atonement for us, of covering for us through your Son is invaluable and claims our heart, our soul, our all. Send us forth as your witnesses, trusting in your truth and not the opinions of other people in the world. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.